Hey everyone, welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. My name is Jared. I'm joined here by the Show Me the Meaning team with a special guest. So we've got Austin. Hey, hey, boo, you whore. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, Ryan today is at the courthouse trying to get his way out of a speeding ticket. God bless him. Oh. So today we have our special guest, Claire. Hi, it's Wednesday and I'm not wearing pink. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Claire, do you even go here? I don't. I don't. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> So, today we are covering the 2004 teen high school movie Mean Girls, directed by Mark Waters, starring Lindsay Lohan, Rachel McAdams, and co-written by Tina Fey. So, uh, let's go ahead and get some first impressions, and I want to hear not only uh, what it was like the first time you watched the movie and what it's like revisiting it, but also, what are your guys' favorite high school movies? So, uh, it's hard to remember the first time I saw Mean Girls um, because it came out in 2004. So, I was 12, which means I was in seventh grade. (laughs) And, um, of course, the the main characters are 16 and 17. But I imagine high schoolers watching Mean Girls are like, oh, this is a funny movie. But they're not taking away anything really, um, like, impressionable from it. Whereas when you're 12 and you watch Mean Girls, it's like, oh, my God, this is how high school works. I better get prepared. Let me map out my entire school in terms of clicks. So it was probably way more influential on me than it should have been. Uh, but I watch it about every six months since I was 12. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I've gotten a lot of impressions over the years. <laughs> my favorite high school movie though is Heathers and it's hard to compete with that. Oh, I challenge gosh. any of you to compete with Heathers. Mm. Did did you have any new insights or what was it like uh, watching it in preparation for this podcast? Yeah, I was really uh, much more attuned to um, the concept of girl world. How, uh, I mean, Katie Mm. mentions it constantly throughout the movie, but uh, when I'd watched it in the past, it was just like, oh, haha, girl world, this idea that, you know, girls are different. But uh, when I really started paying attention to it, the movie does so much to construct it as its own like biosphere. There's some very interesting particular things about the zone of girl world that really caught my attention that I'm looking forward to talking about. Very cool. All right. And what about you, Austin? I mean, I don't want to say that I ever had a a moment of pure enlightenment like Siddhartha Gautama or something like that. But um, I would like to say that there was a... uh, a before Christ and after Christ version of Austin. And this, when I saw this movie, it was definitely the before Christ version, um, if I can use that metaphor. So I was pretty much just a dude when I saw this, like a dumb young dude that was like, Rachel McAdams is hot, man. And uh, yes, she's still hot. <laughs> but um, I watch it now, I think, with a different lens, because hopefully this is the, uh, the, the AD, the Anno Domini version where I've, you know, been introduced to philosophy. I've gone through my sort of theological religious turn and then my my post-Christian turn and my post-post-Christian turn or whatever. So I think I look at it now with a little bit more of um, a critical eye. And I actually agree with Claire. I was really struck by this idea of the girl world. And I'm really excited that we have Claire on and that it's not just a bunch of dudes talking about a fucking movie called Mean Girls because <laughs> I'm really interested to see if we can flesh out this idea of uh, if there is a unique biosphere as she put it, that that is particular to like the high school girl or to the female experience of a particular age in a particular region of the world. The United States high school experience is very unique. So that was really what struck me this time. Um, I have no recollection of the first time I saw it, like I said, other than like the shallow, superficial, these girls are hot. 
Um, and then my favorite teen movie of all time, I mean, obviously, when I was younger, I snuck into American Pie, so that had a big impact on me. But my favorite teen movie of all time is probably actually The Girl Next Door with Emile Hirsch and Elisha Cuthbert. Wow, really? I fucking... That's, a, that's an interesting take. I love that movie, dude. Um, so, and actually, I think Mean Girls is, is right up there with it. Um, they'd be like 1A, 1B, and if I can add a recent film, Edge of 17 might actually kind of be in there as well. I don't know if you saw that, but Edge of 17 was was pretty fantastic as well. Isn't the girl next door about she's like a, a porn star or something? Yeah, uh, it is. So, yeah, that, that's right, but I think uh, okay. it's got layers. It's got lots of layers. No, no, I, I, I know. I'm just trying to, I, remember, I saw it in like early high school, and I'm trying to remember like, oh yeah, that movie exists. Yeah, I love that movie, man. What about you, Jared? Um, so... Something tragic about my upbringing is I skipped the John Hughes era. I didn't see The Breakfast Club or any of those movies until I was much older. So when I grew up in middle school and I saw teen movies, the teen movies that were coming out when I was in middle school were like all pretty unanimously bad. Like there was like the Freddie Prince Jr. era. Yeah. And so when Mean Girls came out and I don't remember, I think I was like in my sister's apartment when she was in college just not wanting to do anything. And she's like, oh, you should watch this. So I was like ready for it to suck. I was like, oh, fine, I'll watch this, but it's going to suck. And I was, I think like in my edgelord state in high school, I was just so <laughs> resistant. I was like, this sucks. This sucks. No, Jared, this sucks. It has to. It's Mean Girls. It's a teen movie. Teen movies are horrible. And then as the movie kept going, it it kind of won me over. And yeah. um, I've seen it a couple times since then. And it's so funny. But one thing that I'm kind of critical about this movie is I just don't really like the third act very much. I just mm. feel like the whole assembly in the gymnasium is very much like a telethon. And I really, when Regina finds out that Katie has been sabotaging her and that she's been made her fat, I'm like, hell yeah, we're going straight into the third act and it's going to be an all out war between, you know, the master and the apprentice. And it's going to be a back and forth and we're going to see this ultimate showdown. But it doesn't really happen. We just see Regina turn the burn book in. She makes her last attack. And then it just kind of devolves into like a moralizing thing in the gymnasium. And not, and not that I hate that gymnasium scene. There's some very funny moments there. And I think it's the comedy of the movie that ultimately maintains it and makes it still work. But man, I really wanted that kind of Obi-Wan versus Anakin, hmm. you know, Jedi versus Padawan moment where we see uh, them really go head to head. And not only that, but I really was hoping that, I mean, this still kind of happens in the movie, but I was hoping that Katie would have to not only retake or reestablish her identity as not a plastic, but use those skills, use the non-plastic elements of her to take down Regina. Mm. And I, basically, I was just wishing there was more of like, they're both aware of the fact that they hate each other, that they're, that they're in combat, and we see them go head to head. I just wanted a little bit more of that. I wanted a more explosive third act. Yeah, basically. it does wrap up a little a little too nice and neat and convenient, maybe. The third act oh, does... It's, it's disgustingly yeah, yeah. Saccharin, but it's on purpose. Um, As soon as you said the Master and Apprentice, I I knew you were going to go the Star Wars route. And (laughs) I don't think that it could have done that and been true to the movie that it is because that's Boy World. In Boy World, the Master Mm. and the Apprentice having this big like Mortal Kombat battle ripping on each other's (laughs) spines. And that's not Girl World. So... Mm. um, I hear you. Yeah. That's that's my maleness coming out, I suppose. Mm-hmm. All right, before we get into the recap, just want to tell you guys what we're doing next. We're going to be doing the Oscar-nominated film, Get Out. Jordan Peele's, what I consider to be 
Well, it's actually my favorite movie of the year, so I'm really excited about that. So we will put in the description ways that you can watch Get Out, and hopefully you'll watch it with us in preparation for next week's podcast. All right, so on to the recap. Uh, So, homeschooled transfer student from Africa, Katie Heron is having a difficult time adjusting to her new life at a Chicago public school. She eventually befriends two outcasts named Janice and Damien, who educate her on the social hierarchy of North Shore High. On top of which lies the Plastics, led by their ruthless leader Regina George and her two underlings Gretchen and Karen. Soon, Regina and the Plastics take an interest in Katie, and Katie starts crushing on Regina's ex-boyfriend, Aaron. When Regina betrays Katie by getting back together with Aaron, Katie, Janice, and Damien band together to use Katie as an undercover operative to sabotage Regina. Katie's initial efforts are thwarted by Regina's seemingly social omnipotence, so Katie turns her right-hand woman, Gretchen, against her, exposes her infidelity to Aaron, and tricks her into gaining weight by eating only carbs. But when Katie gets nominated for Spring Fling Queen, the power gets to her head and she gets in too deep. She starts acting like a plastic, wearing increasingly excessive amounts of makeup, donning sluttier clothing, and being more self-centered and flaky toward Janice and her family. Things hit rock bottom when Katie throws a party at her house. Aaron rejects her because she's too much like Regina. Janice and Damien turn her back on her since they weren't invited. And Regina discovers that Katie has been sabotaging her and vows revenge. So Regina takes the plastic's infamous burn book, implicates Katie, and spreads it to the entire campus, causing chaos in the hallways. In response, the school faculty, led by math teacher Mrs. Norbury, or Miss Norbury, leads an afternoon activity of girl rehabilitation. When Regina is faced with the truth that nobody likes her, she storms out of the assembly and gets hit by a bus. Katie owns up to writing a lie about Miss Norbury in the burn book, wins the mathletes competition, and makes it back in time for the crowning of Spring Queen and King. Not only does Katie win Spring Queen, but she breaks the crown into pieces, distributing it amongst all the girls in school, thus dismantling the monarchy. Regina is reborn a jock, Gretchen an Asian, Karen a weather girl, and Katie as an art kid. Things are good for now, but there's always the impending threat that another generation of plastics might come seize power on campus. End of movie. Hmm. So my first question to you guys is, why do you think this movie holds up so well? What makes it an essential high school movie that people still talk about? What makes it part of the high school canon? It's fetch. You know, <laughs> I know you're in England, but stop trying to make fetch happen. Fetch is not going to happen. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't help it. That's a really hard question. Well, I think a lot of it just has to do with great performances. I mean, we can talk a little surface level here. Rachel McAdams is so good. I mean, this is what made her a star. Right. And uh, Lindsay Lohan is great. Tina Fey is great. Uh, Even Tim I Meadows. Love Tim is Meadows. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Why is he not in more stuff? He's so funny. Uh, I, I made. I don't know what is it. The ladies' man movie that they tried to make. Maybe that. Oh yeah. Tanked. Yeah. Exactly. See the fact that you were so shocked in remembering that. Um. Yeah, I agree. I think performances are part of it. I think, and not to to get too sidetracked, but in referring to films that I that I love, like teen films that I love, like Can't Hardly Wait or uh, Girl Next Door, there's something sort of endearing about the subtlety with which they deal with high school cliches. So it's not that they avoid high school cliches, but this isn't She's All That in like the Freddie Prince Jr. era. This isn't quite American Pie where it's a little too cliche about its dealing with the high school cliches, but there's like a nice subtlety and complexity that also sort of exposes the silliness with which... So I I love the way this film sets up, right? She comes from Africa, and the first thing she's introduced to is the fact that she is not an adult and that she is not treated as an adult and that she is treated with like this rigid, strict sort of uh, regiment 
in 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 her high school experience, her first experience in uh, an American public high school. And they even have that uh, that quick little uh, flash, the supercut uh, of like all the teachers saying like, "Don't do this, don't do that." And then they have the last one who's speaking in German, like she's a freaking like Nazi guard or something like that, right? <laughs> and or a German so, teacher, <laughs> or, or a German teacher, right? It could be or or a German teacher. Um, but there's something that that it almost is is talking about. Um, this experience of of being human, but in a way that is a little bit more deep and a little bit more complex than the way that the typical high school film, I think, addresses these these similar common struggles or phenomena. See, I think it's almost the opposite. It's so clear in not taking itself seriously and going beyond the bounds of what could reasonably be an interpretation of high school cliques that it's it's funny in its satire, it doesn't try to actually address cliques with nuance. It goes so far beyond what we could reasonably believe is an accurate interpretation of cliques that it just kind of makes it its own thing. The world in Mean Girls is its own world. It doesn't it doesn't map on to anything for the most part in reality. And so it's interesting as kind of like a world building film. Mm. Um, I think more so than addressing the realities of cliques in high schools, which don't look anything like the plastics, of course. Well, Austin, you went to high school. Did you go to a public school in the Los Angeles area or in uh, California? Yeah, in Orange County, which might be even worse than in LA. Uh, so I'm wondering, I, you know, all these high school movies are, I feel like, you know, somehow representations of like Beverly Hills High School. Yeah. Did you feel that way? Was your high school experience closer to this? Because I know that uh, Claire and I both went to high school in the South where perhaps it was less uh, extreme like this, but what was your high school experience like? Here's the thing. I, I think Claire mentioned this in her her, her intro where she said that uh, something about like the, the the pure delineation of the cliques wasn't something that she was was something that she was expecting and then it wasn't like that when she got into high school. And I, I too feel like I was betrayed by all of these high school movies. Like I was expecting that if you were a jock, you were just a jock. And if you were the prom queen or king, that you were like perennially in the running to be that, right? Like you were the hot person as the freshman, the sophomore, the junior, and it was just assumed that you would be the prom king or the spring fling queen or whatever, right? Um, or the homecoming queen. And then in my high school, it was actually really fluid the way that people moved in and out of these social groups, which was really strange to me. I mean, yeah, we 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 certainly had cliques. We had people who were jocks, but at the same time, you know, like one of the guys that was the captain of the football team was also a 4.0 student. You know, um, so it wasn't like this clear, like if you're a jock, you're an idiot. And if you're smart, then you're a nerd and neither shall the two meet. So, and then not only that, but people popped in and out of these social groups. Like I remember, you know, as a sophomore, so-and-so was a part of this group. And then the next year, because I don't know, maybe they worked out over the summer or maybe they developed over the summer, or maybe they joined some sort of sports team during the summer that somehow then they were in a new social grouping. So the, the clicks were a lot less fixed in my experience. Now that could be just a total bullshit fabrication now, some odd years later. But I remember thinking that at the time and being sort of surprised, like, huh, that's interesting. That's not quite what I expected from watching these movies growing up, you know, or even hearing my mom talk who made it seem like it was much more fixed. And she did go to high school in the Los Angeles area. So maybe it's like cliches from a bygone era that have been 
reproduced in films like Varsity Blues and shit like that? I, I don't know. I don't know. But in my experience, it wasn't quite like that. Okay. So there are two metaphors that uh, ju- that they juxtapose with the high school experience that I think is one of the reasons why this movie is so clever. So uh, I want to break them both down and uh, we can... So the first one is high school, it's as savage as the African wild. Mm-hmm. And due to that, it must be studied through an anthropological lens. So throughout the movie, we have African tribal music playing throughout. Uh, we have those fantasy scenarios in which the girls fight like wild animals. And then later in the movie... Uh, when Tim Meadows has to, uh, you know, bust up his hand uh, hitting the fire alarm and hmm. having the sprinklers go off. Like, this this becomes literal. And then after Katie finishes her speech at the prom, we hear more kind of African music that's kind of almost like reminiscent of the beginning of uh, The Lion King. So there's that. And then the other metaphor that I think is really clever here is that, like, the high school power structures are like a traditional monarchy requiring espionage and infiltration, manipulation, usurpation, and ultimately a social revolution. Uh, So there's Regina. Her name means queen. Uh, Her surname is George, kind of reminiscent of an English king. She has a right hand. Gretchen is her right hand. And then there's that really interesting scene where right before the... Um, their whatever their performance, she says, "Oh no, I want Katie to be on my right hand." Mm. Yeah, the bit uh, where she's Gretchen like the enforcer is, of is like ranting about Julius Caesar and Brutus. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. We should all just she's, stab Caesar. Yeah. This might be a podcast <laughs> of me just quoting Mean Girls. Actually, <laughs> hey, that's okay. <laughs> so like, she enforces strict laws. She like she lives in the master bedroom of her parents' house. Ooh, right. So um. One of the things that struck me, and I'm curious to see what you guys think about this, is if we think about this movie in context of other high school movies, you know, we have the Molly Ringwalds and the Freddie Prince Juniors that they're popular, but they basically just become slightly better popular people. They become mm. like rehabilitated popular people. But in Mean Girls, we have like this outsider, this non-anointed one who almost dismantles the idea of popularity altogether. And like at the end, she breaks up the crown, dis- disperses it among the girls. And then I guess the salvation in the end is that there is no more social group on top. There is no more plastics. The plastic have been dispersed into their kind of fragmented groups and 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 that's like you know now we feel that justice has been done and i feel like that's um it's almost like it's like the last jedi or the king's speech of high school movies if that makes sense you know in 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 the last jedi like you know oh well there ought not to be anointed pure blood jedis it's that you know anyone can be a Jedi, or that like we're dismantling this idea of the chosen ones, the uh, noble blood, uh, in favor of a more kind of equal society, in a sense. D- does that resonate with you guys, or am I digging way too deep? Oh, I have a lot of feelings about this, actually. Mm-hmm. Go for it. Yeah, so this was one of the things that I was going to bring up, so I'm really glad that you noticed it too, Jared, uh, that in this high school setting, and I'm going to kind of narrow it to say even specifically in girl world, there's this uh, conflict between um, the African and notice that she comes from Africa, not Mozambique or Tanzania or Ghana. She comes from Africa. Um, This uh, African um, jungle instinct and, you know, that has its own weird essentialism, but the the kind of Mm -hmm. instinctual, um, you know, girls leaping on each other. And maybe the most significant moment of that for me wasn't... um, 
any of the fantasy scenarios or uh, when there's actually the writing in the hallways. But when she's talking to Aaron in, in math class and she can't figure out how to talk to him and she says, I followed my instincts and then mm. pretends she doesn't know anything about math. So there's more mm. subtle ways also where this idea of just following animal instincts kind of moves in subtle ways all through the dynamics of girl world. And then at the same time, you have these rules that even Regina is not exempt from. She's constantly saying, I want to lose three pounds and then going off to get cheese fries, which is meant, I think, to convey <laughs> that she doesn't actually want to lose three pounds, but she is not exempt from these power structures, even though she's the queen. So, um, I think we also get this really well in the um, the sequence that you were talking about earlier with the teachers telling her all the rules. There is this, uh, the school is meant to impose rules and make these wild youth into docile bodies. Mm -hmm. uh, forgive me for bringing in Foucault. <laughs> no, 100%. I was just thinking that disciplinary society, 100%. Can, can you guys expand on that a little bit? Because, uh, sorry, I, I'm not familiar with it. Oh, absolutely. So um, Foucault has this idea that he elaborates towards the beginning of Discipline and Punish um, that uh, the power structures in society uh, partially serve the aim of taking individuals and making them into what he calls docile bodies. Uh, and this happens through the school system, through prisons, through the military, through a thousand other ways although school is very significant in it, where we learn to cross your legs and sit down with the teachers talking and follow all of these rules that eventually become really ingrained where you don't have to um, you don't have to be constantly told you're monitoring yourself in this way that makes the very physicality of you, which makes your body kind of docile and subservient to, to the power structure. Um, but power is something that doesn't come from any one individual. It's something that can be used by individuals, but which ultimately has, uh, its, its meaning and its power, its, power has its power uh, hmm. outside of anything that one or two people can wield. So seeing these um, docile bodies uh, being inscribed with all of these rules, um, and those get particularly strong when we get into girl world, when you have to follow certain rules of how to eat, especially, um, especially talking about bodies, there are very obvious constraints on what the body, the female body is supposed to be. They know that they're supposed to go in front of a mirror and say, oh, I have man shoulders. Oh, I hate my nose. And Katie, as she goes through her time in girl world, learns to hate her herself in these certain ways uh, and learns how to inhabit her body in certain ways um, that are, are prescribed by a larger power structure that even Regina isn't exempt from. And we have that contrasted with this kind of animal nature of women as they, uh, you know, as they show in all of these different fantasy scenarios. Uh, but Austin, do you have anything that you want to add on to that with the Foucault? I, I would add another figure. I mean, I think what you said about Foucault is really interesting. That's kind of what I was implicitly hinting at when I was talking earlier about her coming into this world and being socialized. Um, Foucault was kind of always looming over my shoulder. But another figure or figures um, 
they they kind of expand on this idea in a different way for a different trajectory. But Deleuze and Guattari write about this idea of becoming animal, and it's the idea of sort of the dissolution, if you will, of those social um, structures, the the um, the permanent fixtures, the concepts, the ideas, the the fixed identities that make up what we're generally accustomed to living and understanding and thinking in um, uh, a social setting. So the idea that women are X or do X or that men do Y and that jocks do this and you sit here and you sit there and you wear this and um, the fact that there are these expectations, these identity expectations that we then enact as we appropriate them, um, they can be dissolved through this process of becoming animal. So simultaneously, in that process of being socialized and being disciplined, there's also the sort of deconstruction of that in the perpetual sort of flashback or the uh, the the images that you get of like the uh, high schoolers becoming animals and you know that bit in the mall where they're drinking from the fountain and then where the girls are attacking each other like like wild lionesses or something like that. That there's also this sort of sense in which there's a a recognition that these fixed identities aren't permanent and that they are constructs and that they can be undone. And that maybe the final element of the film with the breaking up of the crown and then, of course, these this monarchy being dissolved and, you know, Gretchen becoming something other than uh, the right-hand man and Regina becoming something other. She becomes other. Asian. I can't becomes, get over that. <laughs> I can't get over that. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's the idea of, of traversing those social identities that were set up as being fixed at the beginning of the film. And then Jared even said it at the beginning, but but will a new monarchy arise or something like that? And it's this perpetual play of what Deleuze and Guattari talk about between deterritorialization, which is the dissolution of the identities, and then re-territorialization, which then is the sort of reinstitution of different or new or alternative or um transversive maybe identities that then require another deterritorialization and then re-territorialization. So there's this endless process. And I think you kind of see that kind of coming in there as well with this appeal to the the African wild, um, which I agree, Claire, I was going to ask if anyone felt a sort of discomfort with the essentialism of of the African music and this idea that that... Africa equates to wild and that American high school equates to like uh, civilization or something like that. It's, it, it's not a big issue, but it did strike me as slightly problematic. I mean, race comes into play uh, in a lot of parts of this movie. There's the there's kind of the essentialism of you know the African wild, um, but then there's also the um, you know Miss Norbury introducing the girl from Michigan as the girl <laughs> from Africa. Um, right. Yeah, but that's hilarious. It, it is hilarious. It, it is hilarious. It is hilarious. Um, but there's really a lot of times when uh, maybe. Well, other parts of the movie aren't intended to be subtle. Uh, there, there are kind of subtle plays at race here. Um, and I, Austin, yeah, I was definitely a little uncomfortable with the essentialism of the African tribal wild. And I think they did that on purpose um, to have something. I think they were trying to talk about, you know, the state of nature, like, mm. you know, man before yeah. civilization, like you said. Um, but the way they did that with Africa was a, a little off-putting. Jared, you did— but, it No, I, like- I mean, I wholly disagree. Literally, like, first of all, it's impossible 
almost impossible to offend me. And secondly, I consider my inability <laughs> to be offended to be very virtuous. Um, it is. Like, it is a virtuous thing. You know, it, it, yeah. And like, and as far as like Africa essentialism of it being uh, like savage and wild, like, you know, like, look, we all grew up on like the Lion King, which does the same thing. And yeah, we can get offended at whatever. But uh, look, I mean... There are more savannas in Africa than there are in Los Angeles. Like that's it's okay to that that's not that's not controversial. Like well, well we can I, I we can that. appreciate we can appreciate the wild element of Africa. I mean that does exist. I don't think that we need to like create this alternative reality in our heads that make that make things more comfortable for ourselves. Like yeah, there are wild animals in Africa. There are lions. There are less lions in Los Angeles. And we can draw that metaphor without uh you know offending people. And another thing about like problematic, you mentioned problematic in the last podcast and my problem with the word problematic is like what does that mean? Yeah, I was just going to say that. Are you saying yeah. are you saying that like it ought not exist that it's a no. social ill? No, no, I, not did at all. I, so for did me, I actually say the word problematic no, just I did. now? No, 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 I'm talking about Austin. Oh. I did. Yeah, I, I was just going to I was just going to clarify. Um and I I know especially this is going to be a really timely issue because you know, the issue of of people being very offended and and there's this pushback of whether or not people need to just quote unquote, like get over it or whatever. When I say problematic, I mean that, and I, and I hope this isn't pedantic, but I mean that more in like a philosophical and technical sense. So for me, problematizing is actually, um, woo, woo. It, it's, it's not good or bad. It's not a moral thing. So problematic for me just means that it sort of, uh, it shocks me to thought. I think is what like Deleuze would say. And, and this is actually a very Deleuzean thing, the idea of problematizing. Um, and that it, it brings together or it illuminates certain social tensions. So I wouldn't say I'm offended by the treatment of these African uh, tribal songs or these allusions to the African wild. But it's problematic in the sense that if it's just simply fed to us, then it can seep in as ideology and it can go unquestioned. Whereas what I'm interested in is always questioning and, and and looking at it and examining it and withholding a moral judgment. So I don't mean problematic in a moral sense, if, if, yeah. if that makes but sense. But would you agree that the, that the term has been like hijacked by a lot of like, you know, Twitter activists and stuff to suggest a, a moral judgment? Yeah, you're I, right. And so I, mean, I, and I I'm glad that problematic. I, I hate it so much. I, yeah. I don't yeah. think I said it on the because what, what, what you're Breakers saying. Podcast. No, no, no. I, it was it was. No, it was Austin okay. who mentioned it in Videodrome. And, and like what you said, Austin, is totally on point. And I think that at least for the purpose of the podcast, we need to make sure that we're, you know, most people don't know the Deleuzian term or the way that that is read. So, um, right. you know, but but I, but I in terms of what you're saying, like I, I'm 100% on board with, with that reading of the word problematic. But yeah. I want to go back to the movie and I, I want to kind of go back to what Claire said about. So, Claire, correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're saying is that Regina is not, in a sense, she does not dictate girl world. Like, she doesn't actually have that. There's that centralization of power doesn't actually exist. Girl world is something that is much more like the African wild in that there's, like, this disparate sense of power and that, like, in a sense, Regina is, like, a medium through which that that girl world or that power is, I guess, expressed. But I guess then my question is, at the end, what progress actually happens. You know, if we're to say that, you know, like the monarchy doesn't actually dictate girl world and doesn't put this like oppressive standards of beauty or popularity or whatever among women, then how do you read the ending and, and does any progress actually happen? 
Yeah. So I read the ending as not being in girl world. I think that there's a really interesting and clear visual metaphor where when Katie is walking into the school for the first time with her mom, she almost gets hit by a bus and then she crosses that threshold of danger and walks into the school. And then Regina, when she's coming out of that, you know, happy bonding time and learns that Katie has betrayed her, gets hit by a bus. And the bus going into girl world and the bus going out of girl world, I think signifies that she crossed over this barrier of exiting girl world. And I might be reading too much into this, but it it seemed, it it really struck me at the time when I was seeing it. Um, So I think that- No, I I like that. How how do you escape girl world? Hmm. I think that in reality, escaping something like girl world would be much more difficult, if not impossible. But I think that the way that the movie has set it up, it's um, girl world is something that- is so um, tangible and understandable more than anything analogous to it would be understandable in the real world that since it's this very kind of like concrete sphere that Katie's always commenting on and that we, you know, have these very kind of obvious, you know, conflicts in, it makes it much easier to exit it um, with the a public acknowledgement that this, the structures of girl world are predicated on a lie. So it makes it much easier to exit girl world in the film than it, maybe it would be in the real world. Uh, but I think that th- that's what the bus does. The bus removes us from girl world. And then we're put in this weird utopia. And I'm not totally sure what to make of that utopia, but the utopia pretty clearly doesn't exist in girl world. It's out, it's, they've left girl world. The, the utopia being where now there are no plastics at the top of the hierarchy, right? Yeah, and, 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 and Regina and, and, and plays like the, lacrosse. Regina and, becomes a jock. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's not in girl world anymore. Hmm. Interesting. So, no, go ahead, Austin. Well, I, so, and, and it's a little, a little differently related, but I really am curious about this idea of girl world, Claire. Because, um, uh, so I, I've known a lot of women in my life, and then even like girls in my life who have said something like this, like, girls are bitches or I hate other girls and I only, I have lots of dude friends or something along those lines, right? Like I can't even tell you how many times I've encountered this and whether or not that's just something that was said to try to, I don't know, imitate something that other girls said or whether or not it it was authentic. There is something interesting about the way that girl world is portrayed in this that kind of culminates in that, in that gymnasium scene where uh, Tim Meadows and then uh, Tina Fey are, are kind of trying to hash out the the bitchiness, if you will, of girls calling other girls sluts and whores. And then there's, you know, Tina Fey saying, let's not do that because let's not give men an excuse to call us that. But it does seem that there's something really interesting about this, at least publicly, the way that people view female relations. Like that, that oh yeah, women are just backstabbers and they lie and they steal with, with each other and they're always going to talk about each other behind their backs and they're always manipulative and they're secretive and... And it's interesting that that this film kind of says, yeah, that's that's true, but it's kind of, I mean, it's obviously a social construct if it is true, and it's also a weird sort of projected fantasy from certain perspectives. Maybe it's even like a male fantasy. I, I don't really know. I'm, I'm trying to think through this, and I was hoping that maybe you could touch on this. <laughs> 
Yeah. So I think that what the last part of the movie is doing when, you know, there's no plastics and um, Janice, who was so, oh, I'm going to get angry about this. Janice is not your friend, Katie. She calls you caddy throughout the entire movie on purpose. She uses you. Janice Mm. is not your friend. But this utopia where, you know, Janice and uh, Katie are BFFs and, you know, everyone has moved on to their different friend groups. Um, I think that's trying to redeem what might be seen in the rest of the movie as some kind of um, like misogynist essentialism. I think that the last part of the movie is trying to say, well, that isn't the, you know, determined natural state of women because here, look, we can have female relationships without that. Um, what you were referring to earlier, girls, um, you know, saying, oh, I just hate how, you know, girls have so much drama and I'd really rather hang out with dudes because like, you know, there's no drama and stuff like that. Um, I mean, uh, the kind of easy It's like the rejection, the rejection of girl world almost, right? Yeah, they they might think so, but it's it's not. Okay. I mean, it comes yeah. from this really deep internalized misogyny, um, and mm. it's this idea that to be a girl is something shameful and less than, uh, and so it's this attempt to um, reject femininity and to reject being a girl because you know m- men are held to be something that are beyond the cattiness of of mm. women. Although I have had, I have three brothers and I have a lot of male friends and they are not above the cattiness. Um, <laughs> oh, of course not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But there, there's this sense that they want to reject girl world, but in doing so, they're playing back into the negative social structures and um, to use the term again, the creation of the docile bodies of what it means to be a woman, even as they're trying to leave the physical spaces of being around women. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah. 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 A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And you see that in this film, like all throughout. And uh, Oh, this this film is not kind to women. Absolutely no, not. Yeah. But, yeah. but in an interesting but, way, right? But do you right? think that like pe- people have, ex- or women have experienced, you know, uh, and not to say that men haven't also experienced this, but uh, women certainly, especially in high school, have experienced kind of catty scenarios. And do you think that one of the reasons this film is so popular and has lasted so long is because this movie, more so than any of the Molly Ringwald movies or any of the other high school movies, really does give a voice to kind of like the, what you could call the dark underbelly of, quote, girl world. I think that in this movie, girl world is equated with the darkness and like the backstabbing. But, you know, we see... And maybe that's a little reductive, but do you see what I'm saying? Like no other movie really shows kind of the the dark side of uh, high school female social do, uh, going ons. Heather's. <laughs> and I was, well, that yeah, I was that, say no, no, that's a great earlier one too. Also, when uh, when you said that this is um, the movie that shows. Um, I wish I could remember exactly what you said, but that it shows kind of the undoing of um, of clicks. Uh, I was going to say that Veronica from Heather's does the same thing, but just mm. with you know murder. Um. Heather's <laughs> Heather's is very is very dark. I don't even know if I would consider that to. It's almost it's about high school, but it's kind of outside of the high school canon because. I think Heather's is probably too dark and too almost experimental to resonate with, like, you know, uh, teeny boppers in a sense that when I think of a movie that 
is part of the high school canon. It's that high schoolers of the time can go to that movie and see part of their own high school experience reflected in themselves and say, yeah, this movie is kind of a cultural icon for my experience in high school. Like the one for me is probably um, like the one that most spoke to my experience in high school or my generation's experience in high school was super bad. Um, And I don't, do you think that Heather's, exists in that space? Do you think that people in the 80s were like, oh yeah, that's my high school? I think it's too stylistic and almost too dark to achieve that. Not to say that I don't think it's an amazing movie. I love Heather's. I mean, I think that things like camp obviously can really become a part of something like a high school movie that's part of the high school canon. And I think that the fact that um, Heather's is a black comedy. It's not a horror movie. It's not even really a thriller. It's just a dark comedy. Um, I was not in high school in, what did it come out in, like 1989? I was not in high school at that point, but uh, I think that there was something about Heather's that really spoke to people in high school because we we have all these John Hughes movies at the time um, that are, mm. you know, portraying, clicks and things like that and people being mean, but ultimately with kind of a redemptive message. And Heathers comes back and said and appeals to the like the darkness in teenagers, how there's something that's you know, like the kind of deeply rooted anger that doesn't come out really in in some of maybe the canonical teenage movies. I think that in the same way that uh, My Chemical Romance opened a really important space for teenagers. Um, I think that Heather's probably did the same thing. And so it deserves to be part of the canon, in my opinion. No, that's mm. really interesting. I need to rewatch that movie. It's been a while since I've seen it. Mm. Uh, one thing I want to I mention, I want to uh, bring our attention to uh, one particular moment at the end when Katie is giving the speech as the uh, spring fling queen. And she looks down at the crown and she realizes, she says, it's just plastic. And I think that there's obviously saying that on a literal level, the crown is just plastic, doesn't mean anything. But there's also this kind of double entendre in that it relates to the status of the plastics. And uh, what do you think is meant, like there's a double meaning going on here. And I want to hear what you guys think about what, how this moment, because this is essentially the climax of the film. This is when I guess the social revolution happens. How how do we read the connection between breaking the plastic crown and breaking, I guess, the the hierarchy of the plastics? Oh, my God. I never caught that double meaning. <laughs> well, I mean, so there – this is not in the text explicitly at all, so give me some creative leeway here. But there is a philosopher by the name of uh, Catherine Malibu who talks about the term plasticity. She's a French theorist. And she's using this with regards to neuroscience, um, but she uses the idea of plasticity in neuroscience in the French uh, term. I can't remember. It's like plasticaire. And then there's, I think it's got like a, there's another word, but there's a dual meaning to plastic. One, which is that uh, it it can sort of be moldable and um, that it'll uh, eventually break, but then also that it's explosive, like we would talk about in plastic explosives. And the point is, is that, um, plasticity doesn't just bend like rubber, so it's not just pure malleability, but it will actually break. And in the break, when it's bent too far, like the crown is broken, then it can also create an explosion where new creativity can emerge or new creations or new transformations can take place. And that's what happens, right? She breaks the crown, she breaks the monarchy, and then she hands it out, and then the plastic is redistributed 
in new ways that creates new social orderings. So that is like a totally loose, my own sort of projected, uh, like intertextual reading of it. But there is something interesting about that, that plastic is easily... Um, it's easily transformable. It's not permanent. There are no permanent fixtures and that actually um, that things can be recreated afresh perpetually. And I think there's something interesting in that because that's exactly what happens, right? She breaks the crown and yeah. then they all they all bear new identities. See, I, I took it as just trying to get out of being grounded. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's that also too. that, uh, do you think that there's an element of the, so they're called the plastics, and I guess at the beginning of the movie, we know that they're called the plastics because why? Is it because they're just, they look like Barbie dolls? And I'm wondering if there's like a, is this recontextualized at the end where they realize that they're not beloved? Everyone actually hates the plastics. So the that, that the idea of the monarchy as this uh, state in which everyone looks up to you and loves you and uh, people willingly give you power is false because everyone actually hates Regina and Gretchen and all that. And that's that's kind of what comes, that's what Regina realizes before she gets hit by a bus. Hmm. <laughs> You're not pretending to be plastic, Katie. You're plastic through and through. Cold, hard plastic. Hmm. Yeah. Just had to add that. Yeah, it, it is interesting how Katie sort of becomes plastic, right? And there's something interesting. We've been talking a little bit about the essentialism in this and whether or not these identities are fixed or or permanent or universal. And there's this there's an interesting point that Katie is sort of infiltrating. She's a double agent, right? She's pretending right. to be a plastic, but then she actually becomes a plastic in her enactment of plastic activities. And I think there's something really interesting in that, that, that kind of like you are what you do. So one last thing I want to bring up just uh, before we go into the mailbag. Uh, there are some... I think one of the things about this movie that it does really well is there's a lot of really good third act callbacks. So in screenwriting, a lot of times you have these elements that you introduce in the first two acts, and then you kind of bring them and tie them all together in the third act. Uh, some of my favorite ones are Regina says of Janice that she just wants to be in a big old lesbian girl pile. And at the end, we see Regina in a big po girl pile in the lacrosse game. Um, they like they get pack a lot of these into that last uh, that last scene at the dance. So not only does the plastic thing with the crown that we talked about, but we hear Regina's. I'm sorry, we hear Katie say like, "Oh, for the first time, I know this song." Calling back to this joke that she's completely oblivious to popular music um, when she's dancing with Aaron. She he asks like, "Oh, how's your stomach? Are you gonna hurl?" Calling back to toward the end of the second act when she throws up on him. Uh, it it's it's good screenwriting, and uh, I thought that it was done very gracefully. Uh, so I think that um, for all my criticisms of the third act, maybe that's just my manliness wanting to see some more combat. But uh, <laughs> but I think there's a lot of great things about this. I mean, it's a very well written movie. I I mean, I think again, it's almost hard to put your finger on sometimes when a, a script just works and whether or not it fits the Blake Snyder save the cat sort of uh, formulaic things that we've come to expect in, in our screenplays. Sometimes there's just like this magical component where things come together. In this film, yeah, the performances are great. The direction is is subtle, but it's not absent, right? It's not, it's not just a, a, a a, a sort of journeyman type of film. Like there actually is a little bit of a fingerprint on the direction. And um, and then if, I think there are so many layers to what's being addressed in this that um, 
that I think is actually like a really brilliant movie. Like, like I decided to not watch the State of the Union address and watch Mean Girls instead because this is such <laughs> just a fucking delightful movie. And I would in no way change that if I could go back in time. Like, literally, this just produced so much joy in in watching this that I think it's really well crafted. It's really well handled. Yeah, I think the third act slows down a little bit because, as Claire said, it is a little saccharine. But maybe, again, maybe it's just because Jared and I are dudes, and so there's a little bit of, like, a stopgap that prevents us from from fully appreciating or immersing ourselves in the an alternative narrative which is something that you know I'm going to perpetually learn hopefully as I expose myself to alternative forms of of art that come from different sources so but I think it's fucking brilliant man it's so well done yeah i mean it's so good um all right we're going to move into the mailbag first i'm going to read a message from Jess Howdy. Great podcast for Spring Breakers. I gotta say, I loved Claire. Please bring her back for future podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Well, here she is. She had a really fresh take and a great new personality to the group. By the way, I didn't catch a Twitter handle this time or however you can find Claire online. Um, so I made, I I actually just made a Twitter. It's at Wisecrack Claire. Um, I was like, cool, I'm going to be on podcast now. Maybe people want to <laughs> hear my thoughts on, you know, funny animal videos. Um, I have exactly 10 <laughs> followers and um, a lot of them are just people who I, you know, forcibly made follow me. So if anyone wants to be my 11th follower, my Twitter handle is at Claire. Awesome. Well, we're glad to have you. Thank you. All right, this next one is from Tim. It says, hey guys, I just finished listening to your podcast about Videodrome. It was for me the most thought-provoking movie you have covered thus far, and I thought I'd share a few thoughts I'd had about it with you. Not really knowing the deeper philosophical leanings of any of the people primarily responsible for this film, I had a somewhat different reading of it. I viewed it as more of an allegory of the effect that media has on mental illness in the technologically driven world of the late 20th century. Uh, from the moment Max admitted to having hallucinations, I began to view him as an untrustworthy narrator, which led me to question whether or not these two rival factions even existed out the confines of his own mind. All this because of a psychotic break induced by a hyperviolent underground television show, which quite literally programs him to do these things. Is the overstimulated media environment we find ourselves in today driving us insane? Mm. I'm not sure this is the question that Cronenberg wanted me to ask, but it's one I've been asking myself ever since seeing the movie. So what do you think about that, Austin? I mean, I think that's a really interesting insight, and I've thought about this for years. I dated a girl for a really long time that did a lot of work in disability studies, and um, and one of the things that I remember we would constantly discuss is is whether or not things like ADHD or um, or autism were like diseases that people have um, or, or that people contract genetically or or how is it that they come about or are they more socially constructed? Obviously, it could be both and it doesn't have to be either or. Um, but there's obviously some disagreement in the world of disability studies about this. And um, as someone who my grandmother was paranoid schizophrenic, and so I've had an up close look at at this type of thing, and it and it came about later in her life, and so which happens sometimes through like traumatic experiences, or for her it was because of um, postpartum depression, and so. There's, there's something really interesting about the relation between the external world, in particular, in this case, maybe the media that we consume and how that affects our psychical states or our psychic states. And I do wonder, I, I mean, I do think that the, the rapid pace at which we, we are consuming 
YouTube information and Facebook information and Pokemon videos with like crazy flashing lights does breed a sense of anxiety and discontent, or at least it heightens it. I, I don't know that that means that there wouldn't be anxiety or discontent out with those conditions, but I absolutely think that there is something interesting to explore with regard to the relation between the way that media affects our psychic states, our psychical states. And, um, I don't know, man, I, I tend to agree. I tend to think that maybe that's the case. And maybe Videodrome is exploring that, 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 that media will make us become the schizophrenics. And I mean that relatively metaphorically, but also somewhat literally, but that, that, that maybe media and the way that it can like seep into our brains and transform our, the, our, our conscious flows that maybe it can, um, have maladaptive results. I, I don't know. I, I do tend to think that, but I don't know. I, I like that interpretation. Yeah, I, I'm with you and with Tim. I definitely tend to, uh, there are times where I become quite a technophobe. Uh, there are times when I'm like, you know, human beings just should not be able to communicate on this level. <laughs> human beings should yeah. not, you know, like sometimes I get really radical and I'm like, you know what? Everything just started going to shit once we were able to, like the the, the creation of the image that can be duplicated is when everything just went to shit, you know? Mm. So, um, Walter Benjamin I, I think, in the house, right? I'm sorry? Walter Benjamin in the house. I got you, Austin. Oh, yeah. Art in the age of mechanical yes. reproduction, but now it would be art in the age of digital reproduction. I have a bachelor's in science and filmmaking. Come on. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I'm with you, Tim. I think, and, and that's one of the reasons why I was so excited to do Videodrome because I think that uh, it only becomes more and more relevant as time goes on. And I think it's just a wonderful film. So um, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed that one. And for those of you who haven't watched it yet, I highly recommend it. Yeah, so good. This next email is from Francis. This is about Old Boy. He said, Hey guys, I just wanted to comment on the quote, Laugh and the world laughs with you, weep and you weep alone from your Old Boy podcast. It's the first two lines from Ella Wheeler Wilcox's poem, Solitude. Both the poem and the film explore the nature of suffering and how it is in the nature of suffering to condemn those afflicted by it into solitude. Essentially, it proposes that suffering is an alienating force. Thank you for that, Francis. I did not know that. Mm. Uh, is anyone familiar with her work? No, not me. No. Yeah, me neither. I'm going to have to check that out. Uh, I've seen the movie, like, as I said in the podcast, like 30 times, and that's never come to my attention. Yeah. So um, thank you for that. He also wanted to know, he said, lastly, I wanted to throw in my question that didn't make it into the Wisecrack AMA. Does it upset, bother you guys how your comment section turns into a dumpster fire <laughs> uh, fueled by ad hominem and fanboy rage jizz anytime you put out a video <laughs> that A critically explores popular IP, B, critically explores an unpopular IP, C, explores the politics uh, behind an IP, or D, critically explores anything. Well, Jared, I think you you would answer that one. <laughs> that one's well, for you. Well, I, I mean, I mean Claire, Claire's written, I'm sure, Claire, do you read all the comments on the videos that you write? I used to. Um, I <laughs> I always read some comments. Um, I don't, for my, my first video was uh, the philosophy of Kanye West way back in the day, and I read every single comment, which I did regret. Um, <laughs> I, I read fewer now, but I've um, been behind a lot of 
pretty controversial ones. Like people, people have some feelings on Wonder Woman, um, on uh, Daenerys Targaryen from Game of Thrones, um, on Kanye. So I have definitely, you know, felt the fanboy rage. Um, and honestly, it fuels me. I love that shit. Keep commenting. Mm. <laughs> Come at me, bro. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that in your Death Note video, Claire, the whole Ring of Gaijis metaphor that you brought up about it being about comment section, I mean, that actually gives me a lot of solace. It's just the idea that when people are given anonymity, they will inevitably be shitty. And so that kind of just, you know, I, I just accept that. I'm like, yeah, you know, because of the nature of the internet and the nature of this anonymity, people are going to be shitty. And so there's nothing really you can do about that. And uh, that's just part of the internet. And another re one of the reasons why I'm a technophobe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Our last question comes from Paulina, also about Videodrome. She said, I really loved the movie and really enjoyed your thoughts on it, but I feel like what you were trying to say was very complicated. And I think there are a few things you missed in terms of philosophy. The biggest being Bruno Latour. I believe it was in 2005 when he wrote Reassembling the Social, and I won't go into the detail of it, but he introduced a theory there, the actor network theory. Latour argues that we are all actors, not just humans, but also animals, technology, plants, etc., and we create these networks where the actors influence each other. So I think in terms of the Cronenberg film, it's the best explanation to what the movie tries to tell us. Uh, it's that it's not technology that just influences us and where it's slave or vice versa, but rather that it's a sort of network, a human technology television relation where it's part of us, but we're also a huge part of it. Are you guys familiar with Latour? I'm familiar with Latour's networks a little bit, but not enough to make a smart comment here. I am, however, very impressed by whoever wrote in. This is Paulina from Poland. And by the way, Paulina, my girlfriend is Polish and she makes me pierogi a lot and it's very good. So I hope you're having good pierogi in Poland. Anyway, go ahead, Austin. No, I, I fully agree. I'm quite familiar, actually, with Latour. And there are certain figures that I don't talk about, but that are sort of always haunting me. And he's one of the ones that is always haunting me. When I was doing my master's degree, I actually led a reading group on a book by Graham Harmon called Prince of Networks that is all about Bruno Latour. Um, and uh, Latour's work, I think, fits very well in exactly what she said uh, regarding the the connections. So for anyone else that's listening, the idea is that um, there is no sort of preeminent status of the human, but that uh, every entity exists on a flat um, plane, on, on a singular plane of existence, and that that beings, if you will, are replaced for what he calls actants or actors, and that actors have reality insofar as they have greater connections. So something like Santa Claus is a real actor because it has connections within its network, and it might actually have more reality, so to speak, than the uh, coffee mug that is sitting next to me because of the relations that Santa Claus exhibits more so than this coffee mug. So things then have a stronger sense of reality the greater their network or relations are. And so what you see in Videodrome is the sort of ever-increasing relation, if you will, between Max and this network that he connects with. And so in that sort of connection, um, there's an intensification of the actor network relation that takes place. And uh, it's very interesting. I think his work is fantastic. Um, there's actually... Uh, he he started with like science studies in the eighties, and so a lot of people think that he's like um you know like the Sokol hoax that came out where 
Um, there was like this postmodern idea that science isn't actually investigating reality or things like that. Latour was one of the guys that was kind of caught up in that world. And then more recently, he's had a political turn. So I would say to anyone out there, check out his works. He's been writing for ages. He's older now. He's in like his 70s or something like that. So he's got a massive au revoir. But um, yeah, great question. And I think she's absolutely right. Latour fits perfectly in and a sort of interesting reading of Videodrome. Maybe we'll do Videodrome Part 2 one day. Or maybe we'll do Existens, and I think that we can probably draw upon a lot of similar philosophies. Deal. So that's going to do it for today. I want to thank my guests, Claire and Austin, for joining me. Just a reminder that we still got our Rick and Morty podcast going, so be sure to check that out. It's called The Squanch. Also, we've got a video coming out on Saturday that is actually, Austin, uh, you'll be interested to know this, is actually, uh, it's on The Boss Baby and is very inspired by the podcast discussion we had. Be sure to check that out on Saturday. Also, I want to remind you guys that next week we'll be covering Jordan Peele's thriller, Get Out. So there's going to be a link in the description for how you can uh, watch or stream the movie. And hopefully you guys will watch it and uh, join us for the podcast. So as a reminder, next week is Get Out. I want to thank uh, Claire for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, thank you for joining us, Austin. Yep. Thanks for having me. Later, guys. Have fun walking home, bitches. (laughs) Bye. And that's about does it. Thanks a lot, guys. Peace.